Welcome to Primordial Tao, Present Tao, a podcast about all things Taoism. Our conversations and interviews will discuss ancient and modern Taoist wisdom teachings, spiritual practices, seasonal longevity and healing traditions, relationship guidance, and profound insights on walking an authentic and meaningful path, however you choose to walk it. Welcome home to the ocean of Tao. There's a part of us that is kind of like pushing ourselves towards our goal in spiritual life, if it's enlightenment or resolving karma or whatever. But there's also this feeling that a lot of us get that you're kind of being pushed from behind in that direction because the universe wants to universe itself through you. So you reawaken to what is already there. Welcome to Primordial Tao, Present Tao, Episode 2. Today's topic, Embodied Spiritual Warriorship. My name is Alex Pruger, and I am here with Dr. Michael Smith. Welcome to the show. Hey, welcome back. So this is the second episode. How are you feeling today? Are you pretty excited? Yeah, I, uh, I'm a big fan of podcasting. This is, I think, the third pos- podcast I've done in my life, so... Uh... It's actually one of my favorite things to do as a way of sharing information with people because you can listen to it or watch it almost anywhere. That's awesome. I've been having a good time with it as well and learned a lot from our first episode together and even applying some of those principles in my life for the week since. Really? I'm curious what about uh, the last episode uh, touched you or shifted something in you? Uh, The one thing that really stood out was just being more honest with myself about especially the relationships that you keep around you and and which are you know healthy and maybe where uh, yeah you're communicating better i suppose Mm -hmm. so yeah so for those of you who haven't heard the first episode it was uh focused on the experience of coming into being and that's a kind of a qigong meditation invitation for people to become more present to their life. And in the first episode, we shared a teaching, a very common Taoist teaching called Xingming Shuangxiu, which is, in a way, uh, some guidance about how to live in a, a way a very meaningful life uh, with respect to your your nature, your character, your authentic self as well as how you face the, you know, the turbulence of your life and what we often call the, the good days and the bad days of, you know, your luck, your fate, your destiny, and just how things are going. Yeah, and that's a huge part of, uh, I think, healthy daily life. And then being able to look, start at least looking for those things uh, through just, you know, dealing with people or work or anything has been really helpful. Cool. So the title of today's show is Embodied Spiritual Warriorship. What does that mean? Well, that's a pretty broad uh, range of experiences, you know, embodied spiritual and warriorship. 
And I'm going to take those apart uh, kind of one by one. But you and I were talking before the show, and you had mentioned to me that you have committed to a thousand days training. We didn't get into the details. So one, I'm curious what it is that you're actually doing for a thousand days and why a thousand days? Well, basically the standing meditation and the Taoist walking are the two main things. And if there's time, I'd like to include yoga and some fitness, um, just general stuff, push-up, sit-up, squats. But also, there's some cool bagua exercises. And the goal is, in, well, get, get that alignment, heal some injuries up, uh, feel more comfortable in the body. And that definitely helps when you want to go play, if it's uh, riding a bike, if it's uh, snowboarding season coming up. Mostly, mostly it is to get fix those injuries and be able to, you know, be more comfortable in, in dynamic movement. Cool. So, for people who don't know, what is Bagua? Uh, so, Bagua is the eight trigram palm. It's a martial art expressing Taoist principles as uh, movement and kind of harmony with the universe in the way that you live and in the way that you live within yourself and with other people, I guess. Um, so it, it has largely to do with finding a rooted existence in yourself, um, as well as to the, the world around you, uh, physically and, and energetically. But expressing those uh, eight palms as the eight perceived elements in the, the Taoist uh, teachings is kind of the goal there. But it's supposed to be it's supposed to heal you, and it's supposed to be an effective martial arts system. Cool. And why a thousand days? Well, you're supposed to do a thousand days training for, I guess, just unlocking, like changing, changing the way that you experience it in your body. I mean, a hundred days in a row is kind of one of the practices, and you, you do, you do feel a habitual shift after that. But a thousand days, you're really committed. That kind of sh changes how you really live, and it, the the goal is to really embody the way you're training to move, so that you don't have to think about it so much anymore. Yeah. So I'm glad that you're doing that because it's a great segue into the idea of embodied spiritual warriorship. Because uh, I've done a few hundred days training, I've done a, a thousand days of meditation, but I don't think I've ever done a thousand days of committed, say, standing or circle walking. So in the sense of embodiment, I'm really curious to see uh, how you move and, and how your embodiment looks within the next three years, because a thousand days is about three years. So that's going to be really powerful to see that transformation, I think. It's really fun. Although some days you wake up really sore, and <laughs> it's just part of it, though. Even that starts to get better, so... So that, that's really great, Alex. Thanks for sharing that. I think it really fits in with the topic of the show. Yeah, and I definitely look forward to learning about what you have to say about this embodied spiritual warriorship because it looks like it would definitely help in any, anyone's life, really. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I'm going to talk about this from an embodied point of view and then a spiritual point of view and then the warriorship point of view. So the first thing that always comes to my mind when I speak to people about embodied experience, especially in the sense of a spiritual practice, is that a lot of us, and, and I've been there myself, so I, I'm not being judgy, <laughs> 
uh, a lot of us, when we first get into spiritual practice, it's a lot about what we read or what we see. I mean, you see a Star Wars movie or is it Star Wars? Yeah. And you want to be a Jedi and you want to understand the force. So at first, our, our way of experiencing our spiritual practice is very much in what we call the narrative. Things you can read, things you can hear, like a podcast, or things that you might be able to say in your internal dialogue, like I'm learning Taoism, or maybe I should sit down and meditate, or things like that, or maybe I believe in, in one or ten or a thousand gods, or uh, I do or I don't believe in karma, or things like that. And those are all spiritual experiences in a way, but they're more of a narrative, right? So most of us, once we have that narrative, and it's kind of like the menu or the brochure of what you're going to get yourself into, the next thing is to bring it into actual experiential practice. And that's where the embodiment part really happens. So it's making that distinction between embodied experience and narrative experience. Okay. So it sounds like the embodied experience is, yeah, one that you kind of have to practice and mold. And the narrative is just, well, it, I think it sounds like they go both at the same time, but they're two directions of focus to practice on. Yeah, and in a way that kind of reflects what we talked about in the last episode, the Xingming Shuangxu, and Shuangxu meaning to study both together. So we have to have a narrative, we have to have uh, an intention and, and things like that. But the, at least in my experience, and, and maybe you can comment on this in a minute, uh, in my experience, when I'm practicing Qigong, uh, Negong, uh, various kinds of meditation, martial arts, movement, I'm just chopping wood for the, the winter or whatever, the more I focus on the embodied, tangible, somatic, sensual, momentum, posture, breath, timing, flow, all of that stuff, that seems more like a practice to me. And when I'm thinking about planning my practice or afterwards I have maybe some notes to write down after my practice, that seems more like, again, um, opinion or, or again, the menu. And it's, it's good to have both, but uh, I, I've always found the more deeply embodied, the more deeply experiential, the more transformational and in, in a way more real it is to me. Uh, would you say that's been your experience too? Or Yeah, and about what you said in the last episode, how you're always practicing that way. If you're splitting wood, say, you're always in the... Um, mindfulness and, and self-awareness of how you're carrying your body and how you're breathing and it is really about even standing in front of the sink and doing some dishes are you in your legs do you is are you standing vertically how's your breathing and then definitely how that kind of feels uh, emotionally am i anxious right now or anything like that can you relax can you by just realizing that you might not be re breathing as well as you could be so yeah that's cool yeah so i'm glad we can both kind of make that clarification for uh the audience um because it's on a podcast right now where we're just sharing ideas which is amazing and fun and cool but what we're i'm really hoping to encourage and inspire people to do is to take the the invitation and to turn it into an actual living, you know, embodied practice. So if we have in a, a sense what, what what embodiment means, and I think we all can kind of say we, we all have a a collective agreement more or less about what the word spiritual implies, because I, I don't really know how to define that except I think I would say we all agree what it's kind of about. 
Um, and making that distinction between narrative experience and embodied experience. The tricky part of embodied spiritual warriorship is this idea of warriorship. Because, you know, if you watch action movies or you play video games and you think of yourself as, you know, your typical, you know, hero army guy from whatever country you live in, uh, running around with, you know, tactical gear and a gun just shooting at people for whatever reason, that's actually more the experience of a, a soldier in the sense that it's your job and you don't really have any deep personal investment in, you know, whoever you're fighting, you're just doing it because your government said so, right? And, you know, that's war and it's been a part of human, you know, experience for thousands of years. But there's a huge distinction between warriorship and being a soldier. And I'm going to share a really interesting um of history for people um, that may really make the di distinction clear. So before I do that, I'm just going to bring up that one perhaps unique or specific aspect of Taoism that I always like to bring people's attention to or back to is that Taoism comes from the indigenous practices and culture of Asia. So when we think about ideas that are coming from Taoist teachings in the modern world, and by modern, I, I mean like the last two or 3,000 years, um, when we think about those teachings, uh, we have to make a distinction between what modern terminology like warriors and soldiers look like compared to what the indigenous people of the world, because we all have indigenous ancestors if you go back far enough. And <laughs> if you believe you're from another planet, I'm pretty sure at some point earlier on in that planet, you were probably some kind of animal. So if we kind of just respect that quality of, of Taoist perception, uh, I'm going to share uh, teaching, and it has a lot to do with the indigenous people in North America, especially the people that lived on the plains. And uh, as a person myself with a bit of indigenous background, and I've done some teaching on Aboriginal education in the post-secondary, uh, at the post-secondary level, uh, I have a pretty comfortable relationship with uh, these uh, bits of history and, and kind of why they're really important. So there's a tradition amongst a lot of Plains uh, First Nations or Native American people that we call in modern world uh, kind of terminology dog soldiers. And that's a very Western kind of way of looking at it. The term actually would describe a person who is using a dog's leash or a dog strap to tie that dog leash or strap around their waist and then to tie that leash about 20 feet long around a wooden stake and then to run towards the enemy and to pound that stake into the ground so that if you're young and inexperienced or afraid and know you're going to die, your job is to stand between the people coming to attack your people, the enemy, and to give the people, the young people and the old people, the best amount of time to run away or to do something else. So this is often young men and women who would literally grab a stake, about a 20, 30 foot, you know, cord of rawhide leash uh, that would, you know, be woven up. And then again, they would run out towards the enemy, pound that stake into the ground, tie it around their waist, and to stand and hold their ground in that form of warriorship. There might be other warriors who had more experience, who might be on horses, they might be ready to fight in, in a more classical battlefield, you know, well-armed, well-trained kind of way. 
And obviously those people are in the same place emotionally and spiritually because they're there to, in a way, offer their life and their skills to fight the bad guys. Right? But there's also the people who are young or old or inexperienced who know that the only way you're going to keep your people alive is to sacrifice yourself and to do your best, even if you don't really know what you're doing. So I always have thought that the, the dog strap or the dog leash warriors have always in my mind or my heart held a certain place of a real deep quality of warriorship, which is it's 50-50 or probably worse in the sense of, you know, whether or not you're going to live that, um, you know, you're committed to that kind of bravery and that kind of courage. Wow, that is really powerful to be so brave that you choose to stand up for people or what you believe in, but then also self-aware enough to know I might still decide to run away and then taking that option away. So how can people use that in life now? I mean, how can most more people connect with that kind of mindfulness? Um, I would say the most tangible places to start is with any kind of a practice. And if it's a yoga practice, mindfulness, meditation, breath work, qigong, uh, resistance training, running, swimming, whatever it is, but to make your relationship with a practice about a specific kind of progress. You know, a lot of us today, uh, I would say, and uh, as a clinician, you know, I see this all the time, a lot of us have mild to moderate addictions. Some of them, some people have severe and, and like almost life-threatening addictions, obviously. But for most of us, we're addicted to a kind of distraction. So when we commit to a practice, it could be like, say, meditation or qigong, it's that we're committed to our practice and that we're trying to create a kind of progress, but we can't control the progress. And that this is a hard thing for people nowadays because we're so used to just sort of scrolling and shopping. So we know what we want, we know what we're gonna buy, we wait for it to get delivered, and you know, here, here it is, and I hope you're satisfied with what you bought. But that's very predictable, and there's a kind of ownership and a kind of impatience and a kind of entitlement and a kind of almost greed to that in a way compared to what people have been doing with meditation for thousands of years where you sit and you commit to the details of your practice and to the unknown, unknown qualities and unknown accidents and unknown uh, epiphanies of a meditation practice. So progress isn't something you can control. And transformation isn't something that you can decide because, and this is a funny thing, uh, I always think of puberty. You know, if I was 12 years old and I tried to decide who I was going to be and how I was going to look when I was 18, I kind of have the feeling I'd be pretty freaked out about the whole thing because you have no idea how you're going to look in a few years. And in some traditions, we have many puberties in life. So if I'm in my 20s and, and I'm trying to decide who I, who I want to be as an adult and I go through that second puberty, people call it Saturn return. If I'm trying to determine who I am in five years, I've taken away the possibility of transformation because now I'm stuck being 25 in my 30s because at 25 I thought I knew enough to decide who I was going to be in my 30s. And that's just sort of the flaw of the modern world because we just keep thinking we know enough, we have it all figured out, and that, you know, we're in control of who we're becoming, so we win. 
And when it comes to spiritual practice, that's the opposite. I'm investing in being transformed, blown away, blown open, ripped apart, remade in, in a more authentic and, and powerful way. But you can't have transformation and profound realization if you already know or think you know what the answers are or how it's going to look and feel. So that's always the real hard part about coming into a practice, right? Is you have to kind of give up control at the same time as staying dedicated to something like a meditation or a qigong practice. Sorry, I was just going to ask if it if it if it matters if you practice for five minutes or for twenty minutes a day. If, um, um I, I, I guess it depends on what you're practicing. I mean, there's some things that take 30, 40 minutes to even begin to happen. Uh, if you're only available for a few minutes, then what I usually recommend people do is do about two minutes an hour or like two minutes five times a day instead of 10 minutes in the morning. So if you were for people at work or some example like that, I mean, to just take two minutes to check in if you have good posture and if you're breathing right and try to calm down like that or what kind of practice do you have in mind for just a short practice on that uh well i'm reminded of uh i had a really serious job when i used to be an engineer a long time ago and i was running this factory and i was really new at it i ended up managing it when i was pretty young so i was like ah really stressed out and you know, if things get messed up, somebody could like chop off their arm with all the machinery. So I, I was responsible for a lot of stuff. And I'm not making this up, Alex, for like three months. I went to the bathroom for about two minutes every hour so I could go to a place that was quiet because of all the big machinery in the factory. Uh, and then I would just sit, you know, and go into what I would call go into state you know, posture, breath, awareness, you know, clarity, maybe doing something with my hands and, you know, just getting into a place where I was um, coming from the place that I was most familiar with in, say, martial arts and Qigong practice, because you kind of get to a place where you're in the eye of your hurricane and then life, you know, relationship, pressure, all that stuff can throw us back into the hurricane. So I actually did that for, for about three months at that job. And there's kind of some funny stories about the people watching me do that. But uh, the, the thing that I, I would encourage anyone to do who doesn't have 20 minutes a day to sit or to stand or to move in your practice is to find little moments where you can just decide, you know, go to the bathroom, go for a walk, go and stand by the photocopier and pretend it's broken or whatever you need to do so that you can come into state. And the more times you do that throughout the day, the more your brain and your body kind of shift the memory of who you are. Whereas if you only do it for a few minutes in the morning or the evening, you can't really go as deep as you need to to change something. So it makes more sense to do small amounts throughout the day. And hopefully, when you start noticing how much that's impacting your stress level, your relationships, how you communicate, then you're probably more likely to say, I'm going to get up a bit earlier and really see what this stuff can do for me. So the consistency, that's, that's more of the key instead of just a little bit at the, in, in the morning and a little at night, but more, yeah, more steadily throughout the day sounds like the way to go to kind of embody the spiritual warriorship if, if that's your practice. Yeah. And I think the easiest way to look at that for a lot of people is like momentum. You know, if I'm paddling a canoe and I'm going against the current, I have to keep kind of moving with that, that momentum to actually get where I'm going. 
So again, it's the, I call it an awareness frequency practice. It's the number of times a day that I grab my proverbial paddle and actually move my life and, and my experience of my own inner world in the direction I want it to go. Beautiful. You know, because if I don't do that, the momentum of modern life is actually going to push me towards where everything else is going. And as a doctor, I can tell you, like, uh, well, 60% of adults have uh, their chronic illnesses due to just lifestyle and work stress. 80% of people with autoimmune diseases have experienced enough trauma due to their illness or earlier kinds of trauma like childhood trauma that that trauma is driving their disease. I mean, 30% of adults seek uh, treatment in the modern world for mental illness at some point in their life. That's one in three people that you ever see in a, in a coffee shop or in, on a bus or on the subway or walking down the street. One in three people you see walking around as adults at some point in their life are going to seek mental health care. So our present momentum as a society is pushing us all into a really strange place. And with that metaphor of, you know, pounding that stake into the ground and tying that rope to it, I like to remind people you're, you're kind of staking that, you're pounding that stake into the center of your heart when you make, in a good way, not in the vampire way, <laughs> but in, in a really good way about saying, I'm committed to this and it means enough that I'm not going to allow the, the bad guys, the momentum of modern society, to wash over me like an ocean and just carry me into the the mess of all those terrifying statistics around how people's health is going. So today it really matters, I think, to have a practice and, and to commit to it in some way. And it's preventative medicine by the sounds of it. I mean, why wait till a uh, troublesome outcome like that if we can prevent it? Mm -hmm. So, and it also, it seems like most of those are, uh, outcomes of like stress related, uh, or yeah, emotional trauma, right? So not to say it's a game, but head games a little bit, you know, kind of, well, kind I mean, of trying to resolve, uh, inner turbulence, I guess. Well, we don't live as tribal people who may have to pound a stake into the ground to keep the enemy from killing our moms and dads and little brothers and sisters. But we have the distraction of our phones. We have processed food. We have insane schedules. We have, you know, I mean, climate change. I mean, whatever it is that, you know, each of us feels is kind of coming to get us. If we don't stake our, our practice to something that means something and tie ourselves to it regularly in the sense of a daily practice, a weekly practice, and I'm trying to play with imagery here, if modern society is like a wave that's going to wash us all into the kind of pit of modern statistics, I want to tie myself to something that matters and it's going to keep me from ending up in that place. Because, I mean, I've been in medical practice for 25 years. All day, every day, you just see people who are trying to swim upstream and trying to eat better and trying to stay healthy, but maybe something genetic has, you know, uh, affected their well-being and then I meet other people who are like well doc I mean it's your job to fix me so you know it's all your fault if I'm not healthy so you know do something and make it all go away and I'm you know in those situations kind of shaking my head going I'm not that kind of doctor this, I'm, I'm the kind that actually teaches you what you need to do to regain your health day by day 
So people have to stake their their meaning, their spirit to something that they're willing to actually kind of fight for. Not in the warrior soldier action movie sense, but more in the patience. I'm not going to go and open the fridge and eat whatever the heck I want, you know, or drink whatever I want. You know, and I think of, you know, here you are doing a thousand days practice. I mean, you've told people what you are doing, but think of three things you're not going to do for the next three years and just share those with people in the sense of what that looks like in the other way. Well, the biggest shift was probably trying to get up at the same time every day. So uh, setting a bedtime and committing to a schedule like that's a bit of a shift. Um, but sleep's really important, honestly. You, you feel way better with, with the right amounts. So uh, the second one is, you know, more persistence towards eating healthier foods and being mindful about the value of the fuel that's going into the body. So more cooking is fun and it just takes a little more time. So it's, that's the third thing is the time management. <laughs> These three years are going to be busy and always having uh, practice to come into where you want to be in a good place, uh, mentally, physically, you know, feeling rested, loose, looking for optimal conditions and consistency. Those are going to, so there it's just it's just a little challenging because you do have to say no to fun social events <laughs> in order to keep practicing but that's worth it yeah so i guess uh that that demonstrates to people i hope uh with the metaphor of staking your heart to something that matters long enough to get the result you're looking for in the face of the enemy which is all the things in modern life that are just going to make you sicker weaker and more distracted so that's where I'm at with my journey and the thousand days uh, so far. But Michael, you've had quite a background in, in similar training and, and Taoism yourself. So where did that all begin for you? I started martial arts uh, and a bit of meditation in Qigong when I was 10. But it was kind of like the stuff you would learn at a recreation center. And it was mostly Japanese martial arts at the time, Judo and full contact karate. Uh, then my family moved across the country and um, it took me a while to find new people to train with. And I have to admit that I got very, very, very lucky. When I was 17 years old, I met a man named Eric Tuttle. And he is one of the most committed, legitimate, high-level people in Canada, if not the Western world. He's been training every day since 1968. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so when I met him at 17 years old, um, and because I was funny when I first met him, he knew that I was doing karate and judo and, you know, all these other things. And he didn't really, uh, love those martial arts as much as he loved things like Kung Fu and internal martial arts like Tai Chi Chuan and Bagua Chang and, and things like that. So, um, he, it was funny when he first met me, he made me go and stand still and then walk in circles around a tree. And I had never seen like Qigong standing meditation in the formal sense or Bagua circle walking in that sense. So I actually thought that he was just sort of like trying to test me to see if I would like stick it, stick it out. Like traditional Chinese martial arts, if you ever seen the movies, there's some poor kid stuck in the rain, standing outside the temple, hoping they let him in. I was living that experience in a way. <laughs> And uh, then I, we started training a lot more. He, he invited me to train uh, more full time. We trained about six hours a day 
uh, for about almost seven years, unless I was away working, you know, uh, during the summer or something like that. And we did, you know, Shaolin, we did Wing Chun, we did other external martial arts and weapons, and then we did the, the classic internal martial arts of Tai Chi and Bagua and Xing Yi, and some really esoteric, weird stuff. So that was over about seven years. But when I was 17, and I had first started training with him, and I started pestering him a lot about Buddhism and Taoism and meditation, and are you a Buddhist, are you a Taoist? And he'd say, I haven't decided. And we'd be walking, you know, from one class to another, and, and I, I always think of like the cartoons, you know, like with the little dog and the big dog, and I'm just yapping away, but what about this, but what about that? You know, and he would just keep deflecting and saying, well, you know, just keep meditating and, and things like that. And um, he, he obviously knew that I was pretty... Um, interested and focused, but I think he also knew that I was just looking for something to kind of stake my, my heart to in a way. And um, eventually he said, well, you know, if you're really that interested in Taoism, I'll introduce you to one of my friends and kind of a mentor. So I said, please, please, please. He got me and a couple of other students together, and we went to meet this man uh, named Pedro Chang. And I was at first a little bit, I don't know, uh, surprised that this Taoist teacher was named Pedro. <laughs> and also when we entered his house, he had a really nice house and I always had this my idea that Taoists were like, you know, hermits who lived in caves and, <laughs> you know, would look like, you know, hermits in caves or something. Uh, turns out this, uh, this uh, Master Chang, he had taught mathematics and physics in Mexico for about 20 years before he moved to Canada. So his Western name was Pedro. Cool. So here I am having tea with this, you know, interesting man, Pedro Chang, in this very beautiful uh, living room. And I think it's important to bring up context because, you know, this Pedro was a very wise, very astute, and also very intelligent. I mean, he taught math and physics and stuff. Uh, so here he is at his, you know, dining room table with, you know, Eric Tuttle, high-level martial artist, very, very respected in the Chinese community. Um, and these three young men who are all training martial arts six hours a day, more or less, depending on, you know, uh, each of us. So that context was kind of important. And he wanted us to, you know, ask questions, but you could, I, I guess when I think back on it, I can see that Pedro was doing a really good job because what he decided to do with us was to show us, uh, four different Chinese characters in what he had described um, or I don't think he used this term, but I, he was implying what we we're talking about, about staking your, your heart to your practice in a really meaningful way as kind of a life commitment, but also about being invested in developing skill and skillfulness. And also kind of at, and I was 17. I mean, if I, if I was talking to someone now in my fifties at the dinner table and he was 17 and I was like, what would I really say to someone, uh, at that age? Uh, about Taoism, I can completely understand why Pedro did what he did. So what he did was he talked to us about spiritual warriorship and he used four Chinese characters to, to help us understand that. So what were the four characters that he told you about for spiritual warriorship and what was the, what was the real meaning behind those guys? So uh, I'm just going to bring up for the people watching on the video um, the Chinese characters so you can see them. For those of you 
experiencing this with audio, I'm going to describe the character as kind of like little cave drawings. So the first character that Pedro drew, and he drew it on this little kind of chalkboard uh, at the table, was the character pronounced sure. And it's actually uh, an image of a person standing on the land. So there's a little line for the land or the ground. There's a vertical line going up for the person standing there. And then there's a really long line going across the middle of that person's body. And the easiest way to imagine that character is to think of someone standing there holding onto a spear or maybe a shovel or maybe something else. They would be a, a kind of almost like engineering level advantage. So if you're the first person in the history of humans to have a spear, you're, you know, kind of like uh, the, the first Jedi in the sense that, wow, you've really done something. So this character, sure, often describes being skillful. Uh, some people use it as a, in the sense of mastery or in the sense of developing something specific. And actually in modern Chinese, if you're ever in China, you can use that word to describe someone who's a really good cook. Uh, you could just use that word to describe someone who's even a really good cab driver because they've taken or elevated a basic skill like making food or driving through Hong Kong in almost, into almost like an art. So because we're speaking about the experiential aspects of practice, I'm going to bring to our awareness uh, something that would be a skill. And in episode one, we had talked a little bit about the beginning of learning some Taoist breath work. So I'm going to use that as our proverbial skill. So last time we had talked about breathing and focusing on the feeling that there's an elastic band between your belly button and your spine. And that it was, as we breathe in really deeply and slowly, the thing we want to feel is our belly getting bigger. I know that's not popular, but it's, it's not that bad. <laughs> we want to feel like our belly's getting bigger so that we can stretch out the elastic between our belly button and our spine. So let's try that. Breathe all the way in, quick, all the way out. And now on the inhale, stretch the elastic and make your belly big. And then as you exhale, let the elastic pull your belly button back. So you empty your whole breath. Now, if you do that really slowly and you really feel the shape of your abdomen changing as you inhale, I notice that the whole shape of my belly is changing, not just the feeling of that elastic. And we actually call that uh, Chiang or uh, the inner vessel, or I often just describe it as an inner kind of flexible egg. So that as I breathe in, I want to stretch out the whole shape of that egg around my belly and up into my throat and all the way down into my perennial floor. So when we get into Taoist practice, that first thing that we want to do is fill the belly, but then fill the whole body and then fill the whole body from the bottom gradually up into the middle and up into the top. And that kind of breathing becomes the entry point into many other skills. So it sounds pretty easy to do. Okay, breathe slow, stretch the belly button, stretch the elastic, feel into the elastic, fill the egg, stretch it out. That's easy. What's next? Well, you could spend 20 years doing that one thing. So we can use that breathing as the proverbial spear that we're learning to sharpen and become more skillful at. 
you know, I think of like spear forms and actually one of my favorite martial arts forms is Bogwa double-ended spear. So you could spend years doing that and making it really like pretty and beautiful and dangerous and, you know, like a movie or something like that, you know, because that's how skill works. But there's also skill that's just about how it feels from the inside. And that's the discernment that we make in, in spiritual practice is it's more about how it feels on the inside than how it looks on the outside. Wow, that's that's really powerful, though. Um, I'm actually a little more interested in the actual guy holding the spear part about that from also learning that form you taught to someone else uh, who taught me. So it it is a lot of fun moving in, in an intuitive way and also just having that awareness and that kind of presence of, yeah, standing right here, you do feel a little strong or, or a bit like a warrior when you actually kind of hold the spear so that's that's really fun yeah and does does the, does the distinction between what that form looks like on the outside and what skillfulness feels like on the inside kind of come across in a way or it, i guess i want to make sure that that's actually coming across in in what i'm saying for the people listening absolutely so and with, with the form, actually, and, and the practice, when you are, are fir at first focused on learning the rough shapes of the moves or the choreography, and later are passed into more the quality of how you're doing those movements is, is where it seems to become more intuitive and almost like something that flows through you instead of you trying to go and do that. It's like that's doing it for you in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the coolest thing about weapons forms is it it's such a such a dance between the inside and the outside yeah it's really fun it feels super graceful and also like an extension of your body when you're holding a, a pole or a spear and you kind of get a feel for where the end of it is as if it were a part of your hand or your arm when it's traveling through the air which is really cool mm. cool so if we were to uh, take a moment, um, you know, you and I and, and the listener uh, as well, and just feel into what that is, to feel what it's like to develop a skill. It could be juggling, it could be uh, cutting up onions in perfectly shaped little squares, it could be anything that helps you in your life move, uh, you know, t towards some kind of improvement and, and some kind of awareness, to just feel into that. And to feel that that's actually, in a way, the portal into any other depth of practice. Because if you can't develop the skill and the patience and the feeling for all of it, there's really no point in trying to go any deeper. So, yeah. So the next character we're going to get into is the character for Jur, which is a term we usually translate as uh, willpower or willingness. And it's a similar character. It has that same picture of the ground and a person standing on it with a spear or something. But below that part of the character is the radical or the Chinese character for your heart in the sense of your present perception and feeling and conscious experience of your life. 
So we're going to go into the breathing again and play with it a little bit more. And I'm going to use that as a way to demonstrate the distinction between sure, just that idea of skillfulness, and sure, this idea of a deeper kind of willingness and commitment. So let's go back into our breath and feel that elastic belly button to your spine, stretching it out. Filling the egg, the lower part of your body, filling the middle of the body, filling the chest. Exhaling, emptying it from the top, emptying it from the middle, and then kind of squeezing it out gently in the bottom. Now that often is described as natural breathing. Shun uh, Hushi in Chinese. And that just means to move with natural flow with your breathing. You can get into more deep things about that that turn into what is called embryonic breathing, but that, that takes about, about 10 hours of actual uh, training to learn all the pieces to do that properly. The next part of that process is going to go like this. So let's go back to the elastic, breathe all the way out, empty your body, and then breathe in and stretch the elastic out about halfway. And at halfway, it turns into a rope and it won't move anymore. So now you have to hold the front of your belly in a way connected to your spine. Now you're going to keep breathing in, but now you're going to turn it and feel an elastic going from the left and right below your rib cage. So obviously, while I'm talking, you can't be holding your breath that long. So <laughs> what I'm going to ask people to try is to just breathe in a little bit focusing on your belly button in your back and then hold your belly button where it is and then hold it strong enough and maybe hold a little bit of tension like you're trying not to go to the bathroom and then see if you can use that muscle connection to squeeze your breath left and right into the sides of your body. So exhale all the way. <sighs> Inhale halfway front and back. Hold the front and back and then try and inhale the rest of the way side to side. And then let the sides come back together as you exhale, halfway, and then front and back come together as you exhale the rest of the way. Inhale front and back, hold it, inhale side to side, kind of squeeze it. Exhale. So as we start to play with that, now there's more skill involved. There's more precision involved. And it takes a lot more attention and focus and a bit of effort, right? So this is where we go from, you know, what it kind of looks like as a basic skill to what it feels like when you're getting into more detail, more precision, more focus, and more patience. Or sure, that willingness to just stay 100,000% present to what you're doing. Cool. And that part where you turn the first like direction of breathing into a rope and then kind of switch it to the side, like just focusing on that when you're breathing is enough to bring you into a focused practice. It did the trick just right there. So yeah, and right. the visuals as well, imagining that it's going to stop going forward here for a sec. So see if you can lock that and then expand the size. It feels really cool as well <laughs> it definitely will and the, the more you fill your whole body or you fill that whole egg the the more you're actually engaged in that that 
skill and willingness to just keep uh, exploring that. And I've been working with that kind of breathing 35 plus years. And there's still parts of the experience I didn't experience, didn't expect to find just doing that breathing. There's a lot more to it, obviously, as, as we keep progressing with, with the skill of breath work. But I just want the listener to have a tangible, uh, predictable way of connecting to that part of their own experience. Immediately more relaxed. <laughs> so we're going to take a short break to give people a chance to sit with that and to maybe, you know, get a cup of tea or something. And then when people are ready, they can come back for part two of the this episode, Embodied Spiritual Warriorship. In the spirit of patience, let's take a short intermission. When you are ready for part two, tap the link below.